So you may want to get your Bibles handy. Uh, I'm going to try to give you another meat and potatoes sermon. Uh, Philippians 4. We're going to focus just on 1 through 7. There's just way too much to take on. I headed into the week intending to take that entire passage on, and it was pretty apparent uh, that was not going to happen. So, And I'm not going to keep you here for an hour for a sermon. So you're welcome. So Philippians 4, 1 through 7. So lest we forget, Paul is writing from prison. Let's remember that as we read this. And he's writing to a small and struggling little congregation in a Roman colony in Philippi. It's their own little colony of heaven in the country of death. Now I want to, if I can, pull from the Philippians 2 sermon from a couple of weeks ago, just to kind of remind you what Paul's been talking about. And I'll tell you why that matters in just a minute. So unity, church unity, right? Very important, all the more important in times of trial. And uh, Paul has these repeated calls throughout Philippians 2 for be of one mind, one spirit, one accord, be at peace with one another. There's a lot of one talk. And our point of that unity is Jesus. He's our plumb line. So we talked about clinging to Jesus, doing that together, coming to the foot of the cross. We talked about um, how we serve one another by looking at his example of humility. So that was, that's a brief recap of Philippians 2 from two weeks ago. The reason I bring that up is because in chapter 4, we kind of have something of a closing hymn, if you think of how that works in a lot of churches. Uh, if the hymn is well chosen, and if it fits into the liturgical flow of things, um, it's supposed to be kind of like that final summary, that emphatic final bookend. And I think that's how Paul is using this passage in Philippians 4. Everything he's invited the church into, he's going to kind of reemphasize here at the end. So it's not unlike our post-communion prayer uh, that we pray right after the Eucharist, which summarizes the liturgical journey that we take every single Sunday. So that's kind of Philippians 4. So 1 through 7. We'll take it a chunk at a time. Let's see if I can make this work. I think I can. Let's do the first three verses here. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Synecti to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Okay, pretty impossible to miss. Well, for one, you get some five-cent words in there, don't you? Uh, yeah, those are fun to pronounce. It, but it's impossible to miss Paul's, that warm, affectionate, pastoral tone in that first verse. It's really characteristic of Paul. He has a very enduring relationship with uh, the church in Philippi, also Thessalonica. You can kind of sense it when you read both those letters. Here's Paul, spiritual father, and he's kind of bursting with pride. He's saying, my beloved, my joy. My crown, that crown being a, a symbol of what an athlete would receive when they won some sort of a contest they were competing in. And I would suggest, Paul has in mind, when he says crown, a race. That is a metaphor that he loves to use over and over. He talks about running the race, finishing well, attaining the prize, right? That's the crown. The prize being, that crown being a prize and a marker that you've done it, okay? You did it. So the church in Philippi is that for Paul. His crown and joy as an apostle. Much could be said about that, but I think that's pretty sufficient. Now, he encourages them to be steadfast, to be, again, he's pulling back on that unity theme. Uh, be unified with one another. Stand firm, how? In the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. 
as in the Lord Jesus, right? So uh, don't stand firm in your own strength. Don't try to do that. Don't try to stand firm in your own perspective. Don't try to stand firm in your own political convictions. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm there. That's your plumb line. Nothing else will do. What's the old line from advertising? Accept no substitutes. That's what he's saying. Okay? Stand firm in the Lord. Now we get to 2 and 3. And uh, it may seem a little odd to us. Uh, and it may seem out of place when he comments on evidently some, some uh, conflict that's going on. But it really isn't odd. Uh, it may be to us, but it really isn't odd in the context. You've got a picture. Again, this letter's being read to the church in Philippi, small congregation. Um, this is the household of God. And so Paul is doing some family talk, right? This is talk around the family table. He's uh, offering some counsel. He's trying to offer some wisdom here. Uh, but even then, some of these people we mentioned, uh, Clement, Euodia, Syntyche, Sin, uh, I, I, I practiced that all week and I still am like, it still tongue, gets me tongue-tied. Uh, we don't know who they are. We don't know the specific situation at all. This is one of the greater challenges to interpreting the epistles, I think, is we're literally entering this conversation midstream, okay? We've got this conversation here. We're trying to get our bearings. Here's what we do know we can glean from 2 and 3, even with some of the uh, just foreign nature of it. So, as I said, there's some disagreement between these two women. And Paul says they've labored alongside him. It's actually a very vivid, beautiful phrase. Struggled beside or contended with him. Not, not against him, but they, they ministered together. And he mentions someone else named Clement who's also labored in this gospel work. And he's speaking of these two women as leaders in the church. The way he speaks about them makes it really clear they've co-labored together. Okay? Uh, we don't know to what degree, but we do know that. And Paul asks some unnamed person, your Bibles may say, and help us, true companion or loyal yoke fellow, to somehow step in and help mend what's been broken here, to act as a reconciler. So we don't know what the rift is about. We have no idea. But we know that by mentioning this, uh, this disagreement has negatively affected the church community. We know that. So Paul's commenting on it. That's why he's mentioning it here. And he, his entreaty to these women is to find the common ground between them, which is guess what? Jesus, find the common ground. So he pleads with them to, quote, agree in the Lord. Okay? To have, that is another way of saying, be of the same mind about this. Be the one, think, it literally means think the same thing. Think the same thing in the Lord. In other words, find that common ground. Okay? Find that common ground around the cross. That's where reconciliation happens. That's where we find our unity. It's at the foot of the cross. So it's a little, it's a bit of an aside, those two verses. Paul commenting, hey, I know this is going on in the church right now. I entreat you to be of the same mind about this. Find your unity in this. Okay, four to seven. Paul really packs it in here. Boy, howdy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Who hasn't heard that scripture? Let your reasonableness or gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, be in prayer and supplication with thanksgivings. Let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, there's, so, there's so much there. Um, again, some parting thoughts he's giving, some exhortations, some really punchy, pithy one-liners. But he is returning to speaking to the congregation as a whole. Okay? He's done an aside to this small group. Now he's speaking into the entire church. 
Verse 4, who has not heard rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say rejoice. Everybody's heard that one, right? That is a direct echo of Philippians 3.1. And you could make a strong case, and I think I will. Uh, rejoicing and joy in the Lord is kind of the theme of Philippians, okay? Rejoicing and joy in the Lord. Catch that phrase again, in the Lord. He's fond of that. So is the Lord the object of our rejoicing? Why we do it? Or is he the one who makes that rejoicing possible? How we do it? I'm going to say yes. That's a both and. He's the method, the means, the medium. He's the MO for our rejoicing. All of that makes it possible how we do it, why we do it, everything. And he's giving a communal call here for folks to rally around the cross of Christ. That's where that rejoicing comes from. Now given, let's think about this. Those folks had a little different situation than we did in our day and age. To be a Christian in that day and age meant there was persecution, meant there was fear and doubt. Those were just constants. So I find this example to be uh, really convicting and pretty stunning, to be honest. And let's remember Paul writing from prison at this time. And it's not his first time to be in prison. Think back to Acts 16, Paul and Silas. Remember them singing hymns and praying in prison after they'd been beaten up? Or let's listen to Paul's resume in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 28. Let's see what he's gone through and yet able to rejoice. So five times, this is Paul speaking, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I mean, Paul's getting it from every angle. I have labored and toiled, and I have gone often without sleep. I've known hunger. I've known thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and I've been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So Paul knows this thing or two about affliction. Big time. And yet, he has joy. He has joy in the midst of all those worldly sorrows. And there are plenty of them. I mean, that, listen, did you hear that laundry list? That's insane. That's absolutely insane. And he beckons us to rejoice again and again, constantly. His exhortation is to rejoice. And the way he talks about it is something that's ongoing, okay? And it's not based on circumstance at all. He's describing a spiritual habit, spiritual discipline, if you want to think of it that way. Now, a few years before writing to the Philippians, Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome. And this is from Romans 8.35. This gets to how and why Paul rejoices. Who will separate us from the love of God? Christ. Will hardship, will distress, will persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? No. So to be loved by God, to see the cross for what it is, that is Paul's joy. That's it. Now, uh, I, again, I find this really convicting and really stunning. I've seen this exact quality of joy and rejoicing in our brothers and sisters in Rwanda. Um, even in the wake of the genocide, they still manage somehow to dance and to sing and to rejoice. It brings to mind that, that hymn, the How Can I Keep From Singing? I think Enya popularized it, but it's been around a long time. How Can I Keep From Singing? And the church in Rwanda was one of the most compelling 
And one of the most convicting factors for me as I followed my call into the priesthood, into the Anglican Church, that was a big part of it. Big, big part of it. And I said back then, and I still say now, I want to know what they know. I want to know what they know. It shapes me to this day, their joy. I'm still learning. I, I want to be shaped all the more by that. Joy. <laughs> Rejoicing. So, let me uh, maybe uh, clarify here, I hope. Paul isn't talking about emotions here, is he? He's not just talking about how we're feeling on any certain day. Not that that doesn't matter. Joy, biblically, is not a call to fake it till you make it. That's not joy. It's not a call to, like, put a good face on it, put a smile on your face, right? That's not it. He's talking about something a lot deeper, something a lot more rooted, uh, more powerful, not as capricious or unpredictable as uh, our emotions. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit, okay? All the more glorious in times of suffering. We don't produce joy, okay? It's not up to us. We don't produce the joy. That's Holy Spirit's work. It's fruit, right? God brings the fruit. Now, we most certainly respond to it or not. I think that's true. So joy, I think of it in this way. It's a spiritual muscle that requires regular exercise in worship on Sundays. We're doing that right now. And in our lives, Monday through Saturday, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And I could end the sermon right there. But let me go a little further. Okay. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Make it a habit to rejoice. Moving to verse 5. Paul speaks about, uh, uh, my Bible is an interesting translation. It's fair. Uh, Be reasonable. Let your reasonableness be known to all people. Uh, lest be confusing. He's not just talking about the church. Like, hey, be reasonable with your brothers and sisters. He's talking to everyone. He's saying with the world, in your dealings with folks, uh, be reasonable, forbearing people. Forbearance is maybe a better way, better way to say it. Uh, that's to be our reputation, right? I find that to be a very timely word. Now, the, uh, the word here has a certain nuance I don't want us to miss because it carries with it a sense of graciousness. Graciousness. Imagine that, interacting with the world uh, in a certain graciousness. And yes, even, even tolerant. It carries with it that notion a little bit. I would say it's an attitude of not insisting upon our rights. Okay? So there's a sense in which Paul is calling us to be uh, good citizens here, frankly, so as not to bring shame, public shame, upon the cross, upon the gospel, upon Jesus, so as not to create an unnecessary barrier or impediment to those who are outside the Christian faith. There are other places where he makes similar appeals. So, uh, Paul wants us to be known, Christians, for our gracious, reasonable, and forbearing nature. Right? This is a matter of reputation. Christ's, not ours. He's concerned about this. Now think about this. If Christians in America took this call seriously... How might that impact the current political climate? Think about that. I would like to know. If only Christians would be gracious, reasonable, and forbearing in how they interact with each other and the world. That might change some things right now, alas. Paul says the Lord is near. It's one of those pithy one-liners. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Uh, That can mean a couple different things, and I think Paul's speaking out of both sides of his mouth. I think he's saying two different things. Uh, is the Lord present uh, with them in a Emmanuel, God with us sort of way? 
Yes, absolutely. God is with them. He's present with them as a body. God inhabits the praises of his people. He's close in that way. He's with them by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and all the comfort that brings. So he's with them in that sense. But is he also talking, getting eschatological with us here? Yeah, he's talking about Jesus' second coming. It's pretty clear as you read Paul that uh, he anticipated the second coming in his lifetime. He really thought it was coming. It felt like it was imminent in some way. Uh, early Christians often said that phrase. You've heard Maranatha? You've heard that phrase? It means come Lord, or come Lord Jesus. The day of the Lord is at hand, the second coming. We still in that same era as Paul. So is he talking about Jesus being close to us? Yes. Is he talking about the day of the Lord being close? Yes, it's at hand. Goes on to talk about worry. Uh, reminds me a lot of what Jesus says in Matthew 6, Luke 12. When Jesus says, don't worry about your life. You know, Paul does something similar about anxiety. He gives a negative command. Don't do eps. Don't be anxious about this. Uh, not saying that worries aren't important or that we're not going to have anxiety. <laughs> we are. He is trying to provide us with some sort of a framework or a context for how we engage all those fears and worries and anxieties and concerns, which we have a lot of right now. And that framework is a relationship with God. And the tool he gives us is prayer. So the whole thing I think Paul's inviting us to here is let's take everything just as a child would to their parent. Uh, Take it to the Lord. Do that in dialogue and in conversation. Bring those things to the Lord's feet. Uh, Rather than stewing on them internally, which, you know, we can get in the habit of doing, bring that to God. It's still a challenging, convincing call. But it beckons us to that childlike dependence at every turn as we encounter these things that make us fearful, make us anxious, uh, trigger us in certain ways. Maybe the realist rendering of this verse would be, so when you have worry or anxiety, um, seek the Lord in prayer. Bring it to the Lord in prayer. Tell him all about it. Give him your requests. Give him your thanksgivings. Uh, all these things. First Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Lean upon the Lord. Depend upon him. Uh, and Paul uses a lot of different words to describe how we connect with God in prayer. Supplications, thanksgivings, uh, prayers, requests, all this stuff. And I love that he says with thanksgiving. Because again, I think that's a tie back to joy and rejoicing. Now, in a sense, if you read verse 6, we enact that whole verse every single Sunday at the end of our service when we do the Kenyan blessing. All of our problems, what do we say? Send to the cross of Christ. All our difficulties, what do we do with those? Send to the cross of Christ. All the devil's works, what do we do with those? What about all our hopes? Set on the risen Christ. We are bringing all of those vexing, trying, difficult complicated and anxious things before God and entrusting him with those things, laying those things down and acknowledging him as the true eternal context for our lives, seeing things in light of the cross. Paul ends with a promise of peace, which I love. Verse 7, the peace of God. Again, another gift, just like joy product of God himself. The gift of peace is a product of reconciliation. Scriptures tell us we were once enemies of God, but Christ became our peace. The Romans there, you know, Colossians, other places. And this gift of peace is beyond our comprehension. Your scripture, your Bibles probably say something like it surpasses understanding. 
that doesn't quite capture for me. I can kind of gloss over that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we don't understand it. Yeah, cool. Uh, this gift of peace for me kind of falls into that things too wonderful for me to know category. Uh, our hearts and minds, we just aren't vast enough to grasp that. It's just too marvelous. It's amazing. So it's a gift. The peace is a gift, a reconciling gift. And the way Paul speaks of it here, it's not just about sort of my bit of peace that I get. It's, an, it's not an individual thing. It's a communal experience. Peace is relational. It occurs in the context of community. It's, again, it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, peace. That's why we share the peace, which we'll do in a moment. It's a gift that we give because it's been given to us. So God gave us peace. We share that peace with another. And it's just no small miracle. It's very powerful in the kingdom of God. I think peace, we get this notion of, ah, it just sounds so tame. It's not tame. It came at great cost. It's very, very powerful. How do I know that it's so powerful? Well, because Paul believes, and I do too, and God's on with this too, uh, it's strong enough to guard our hearts and minds. Strong enough to do that. The term here is a military term. It's, It's very fierce. God's peace will keep guard over you. It will watch over you. So you need to envision this peace as a very heavily armed soldier standing watch over your heart and mind, protecting you. Okay? A soldier who doesn't slumber and doesn't doze off and is ever vigilant. So God's peace protects. Strong and mighty. So why protect our hearts and minds? Hopefully it's a little obvious. Those are two fundamental pieces of identity for every human being. That's where there's so much there. The two areas that the world, the flesh, and the devil attacks ferociously and frequently. Okay? Hearts and minds. Thus the need for protection. Christ is our peace. So let's close here. Earlier I said that joy is is like a spiritual muscle that we need to exercise. Uh, We need to do it in worship. Right? We lift up our voices. We pray prayers. We do different things. But we also need to exercise that muscle Monday through Saturday. It's fruit of the Holy Spirit that we don't produce, but we can respond to or not. Will we be people who rejoice? And again, I say, will we be people who rejoice? There's so many opportunities in worship to do this, right? To rejoice in the Lord. Wouldn't it be awesome? I love this. Think of this. Wouldn't it be just absolutely knocked down wonderful if we were known as a church of true joy? Man, those folks have joy. I don't, I don't even think I understand it, but those folks have joy. What a great reputation. I'd, I'd love to be known for that. I'd love to be known that we're known as like these grateful, joyful people. Not happy clappy, not, not plastic, right? Not talking about that. Real joy. Something that is, in a sense, unexplainable in human terms. I'd like that. Something similar we can say about peace. It's another essential fruit of the Holy Spirit. We can't manufacture the peace of the Lord. Can't do that. But we can practice it based off what Jesus has already done for us. So what would it be like if we were known as a people who are peacemakers, who share or practice the same peace that God gave us? What was that? What if that was our reputation? Love that. We're working on it. So joy and peace. I would say they're offered to us every week when we come to this table. Every week. 
I love that the gospel reading uh, was about the wedding feast, a banquet. This is often a foretaste of that. You know, the table is often seen as a banquet. So joy and peace. I think the question the Lord might put before us this morning is, are those things we will embrace and practice, these good gifts that he invites us to every Sunday before we come to his table? Joy and peace, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Place before us, will we respond to this thing?